many, many uh, texts, mm. kind of uh, first-hand texts, that discuss Jesus, and that's a part of of the whole confusing kind of modern or postmodern setting. Mm. Many claim claims on Jesus, and they take him inside their own mm. perspectives. Mm. And uh, who who is he? So the question mm. of identity is a real mm. in the pluralistic setting. Just as for personal identity is is a big question. Mm. Identity Jesus is. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay, grand. So, mm-hmm. and there, there are <coughs> two very important uh, questions to ask from from the apologetic perspective: is um, sources and reliability. Mm. Apologetics question about uh, how do we ground claims about Jesus in, uh, in historical sources? Mm. That's kind of familiar material. The other side is probably also somewhat uh, familiar, it's the worldview, the, the bigger context. Mm-hmm. What is the worldview we put Jesus into? Mm. Is it a, a new religious pantheistic, is, is, is it a, uh, Islamic? Mm-hmm. So we, we both critique the historical basis and we critique the, the worldview mm. of contexts mm. to make clear the distinctions. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Okay? So great. Good. Good. Okay. So since there's just the two of us, do you r- remind me of your name so I can. Lars Magna. Lars. Right, Lars Magna. Yeah, okay, Lars. Uh, so I will try and refer to you in the first yeah. uh, rather than abstract. Uh, good, interesting background reading material there, Re- yeah. resurrection debate. Uh, that's the Craig and and uh, Cross. Uh, Cross oh yeah, John Dominic Crossan. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's part of the uh, curriculum. Yeah, and yeah. also I have on Kindle your book. Uh-huh. Ah, good. Jesus. You've got a. Yeah. Do you want a hard copy? Uh-huh. I brought I brought a hard yeah. copy that you can have if you if you want it. But yeah. if you save space, you've got it on Kindle. That's that's yeah. why I brought one in case you didn't have one. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, so picking up on what Bjorn was saying about um, you know worldview context, that's um, hugely important in shaping how you approach even the gathering of evidence and what you make of it and yeah. assessing it and so on. And of course, Christians as much as anyone come at Jesus with certain philosophical background in place. Mm. Um, I think the, the key distinction is that the, the philosophical background Christians come at the issue with uh, is trying to be the same background that Jesus comes from. Um, so Jesus came from a Jewish monotheistic religious tradition and uh, his teaching and actions were in that context. He was talking as a Jew to fellow Jews uh, and so what's being called the you know the Jewish reclamation of Jesus mm-hmm. is a big sort of movement in New Testament studies that happened in the 20th century uh, because before that uh, New Testament studies had been dominated particularly by uh, German New Testament studies 
um, very influenced by the Enlightenment, and uh, also, to be frank, in influenced by anti-Semitism. Uh, and wanted to find a, a Jesus um, who was not Jewish to interpret Je a Jesus against uh, the background of, say, Greek and Roman religion uh, rather than in a Jewish context so that you would have an, an, an Aryan Jesus, a uh, uh, sort of comfortably Western Jesus in that sense, uh, because of course enlightenment being very influenced by the stream of philosophical thought from the ancient Greeks up, uh, and this Jewish reclamation of Jesus saying, you know, trying to interpret Jesus against um, that Greco-Roman context, so you, you end up with things like um, James Fraser's famous book, The Golden Bough, comparing Jesus to uh, so-called dying and rising gods of polytheistic religions, yeah. saying, you know, Jesus is a, another um, Baal or another corn god, or um, which is material that the sort of modern-day Jesus mythicists draw upon. Saying, so, you know, there probably wasn't a historical Jesus. He's a he's a mythical figure um, invented by Christians on the pattern of other ancient Greco-Roman mystery religions or or something, um, and. A movement away from that in the Jewish reclamation is to say, no, that's the wrong context to try and interpret him against. He was a Jew. The first Christians were, were Jewish. Um, you need to interpret Jesus against that background of an increasing understanding of, the, of first century Jewish culture to understand what he was saying. Um, so just as much as, you know, a, a new age perspective on Jesus might say, you know, you know, Jesus says that he's the son of God. Well, well, yes, yes, he was, because we're all sons of God, aren't we? Because we're all, the, a spark of the divine lives in us all, and we're all part of the divine, and we're sort of getting this sort of pantheistic, almost sort of Eastern view of what you mean by God, and being a son of God, and so on. But of course, when Jesus talks about being a son of God, he means a son of Yahweh, <laughs> interpreted as, as the God of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, uh, uh, and so on. And in that sense, we, we, we cannot be sons of God in the New Age sense. You can't have meant that. So that, that has to be a reinterpretation of what Jesus said to fit in with the particular philosophical perspective that's being imposed upon the text. Um, so yes, you know, a Christian will uh, say, well, we need to interpret what's being said in the Gospels you know, against the background of a belief in the God of Abraham. But that's not, that's not imposing a framework upon the text. You, you get that framework out of the text itself, that, that philosophical framework. And that's just good reading in context, good hermeneutics. Um, and even you know the the sort of atheist and Jewish scholars involved in New Testament modern New Testament study, studies who say you need to interpret Jesus against this background. You know, the atheist scholars like Crossan or Gerd Ludman or whoever may not themselves believe in God, 
but they were saying, you know, what Jesus means when he says that you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Is, he, of course, he's referring to Daniel 7 and he's making these claims about his status and being the Messiah and this is how they understood that. And this is what he's, he's wrong, <laughs> of course. But that, so to, to, just, just to get at what is he even claiming is to interpret it in the context of those primary sources, including the philosophical context of the primary sources. Yeah. And, and in this, it's a kind of a historical method mm. to, to interpret the text. But is it primary um, the New Testament that will lay the ground for how to think about the mm. culture? Mm. Or is there uh, many other sources from the first century? To, to set the culture, yes, that you will sure. try to the framework. Yeah, so so many others. So of course you've got the the Old Testament mm -hmm. scriptures, which close four or five hundred years before the New Testament mm -hmm. opens, and there's a whole uh, called intertestamental literature. Um, some of which different parts of the church do include within the Bible. So the Catholic Church includes a lot of um, this literature. Right? Wisdom of Solomon and books of Maccabees and so on about the Maccabean Jewish rebellion against Rome and um, and people will study the development of Jewish thought between the Old Testament and and first century what's called first century second temple Judaism it's called because the the temple Jesus of Jesus's day was the the second temple um, not the one originally built by Solomon. Mm. Uh, but the one uh, finished under Herod, mm -hmm. um, just about being finished in Jesus's day. Um, so there's this intertestamental period, and, and there's there's looking into uh, Jewish literature from that period, and you can look at um, you know say Jewish historians like Josephus, first century big Jewish historian to see how, how Jews were thinking about the Old Testament stories, how they retold them then, how they were thinking about their place in the world, how they interacted with Rome, looking at issues like what, what was the first century Jewish idea about Messiah? Because it, it, although Jesus proclaims himself Messiah, it becomes very clear pretty quickly that he has a radically different concept of what messiahship is all about and everyone is expecting because they keep misunderstanding him mm. <laughs> and, if, and it, from our if you just read the new testament you think hey why don't they get it you know christians kind of kind of like well the disciples are so, so thick you know they don't understand what jesus is saying about messiah and the kingdom of god and he he tells them he's going to rise again from the dead why don't they why are they so surprised when he does and uh, why are they still asking him after the resurrection, you know, are you at this time, Lord, going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You know, are you going to are you going to kick the Romans in the backside now, Lord? Lord? <laughs> it's like Jesus is constantly kind of saying, "No, guys, that's not what I'm about," <laughs> um, and that's because the 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 Old Testament under predictions and so on, prophecies about Messiahship are being interpreted in the first century in a particular historical context of the Roman occupation. Uh, and people focused on those parts of the Messianic prophecies that talked about the great king coming in the throne of David 
and the wonderful restoration of the the Davidic kingdom, and you know, uh, God's God finally putting the worlds to rights, and you know, the, the, the Messiah is going to come, and he'll make everything right again, and that'll mean you know the Romans will be booted out, and we'll have a restoration of the Davidic king uh, here on earth, and and the Messiah will slaughter you know slaughter all the enemies of God. And it'll be wonderful, you know, and we'll be back on top again. Mm. Um, and they kind of sideline the Old Testament prophecy stuff that is there about the suffering servant, mm. the, the, the Messiah who dies, the Messiah who serves, the Messiah who comes riding on a donkey instead of a war horse, mm. and so on. And that material's there, but they're not kind of focusing on this. And Jesus kind of says, yeah, you're right, guys, but all of that wrath of God, Davidic kingdom stuff, that is at the second, that's at the end of days, at the last judgment, and I'm going to be the judge. All that suffering, humble servant stuff, <laughs> that's me now. So I'm going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, and I'm going to get myself killed by the Romans rather than vice versa <laughs> uh, when I come back for the last judgment <laughs> yes there will be a division and you know God's, God will be God and things will be sorted um, but you're wanting that to happen in history now <laughs> and to forego all of the suffering stuff and you've got it base over apex and let's view it completely the other way up, the other way around than you're viewing it. And, and that's why they don't understand what he's saying um, because of their cultural context and why they don't understand when he says, no, I, I will be raised or I will be resurrected. Again, they're, they're, they're thinking, even those who do believe in resurrection are thinking, well, yes, of course, Lord, I know everyone will be raised from the death on the last day. Think of when um, Jesus revives Lazarus from the tomb and his sister. And Jesus said, do you believe in me, you know, raise me. Oh, yes, Lord, I know everyone will be raised on, you know, at the last judgment. There's no idea of a Messiah who comes and suffers and dies and rises, is resurrected, not many revived, but resurrected. And history still goes on. That's a radically different idea. Um, they may have thought, if they made anything of his predictions, it would be, oh, he means on the last day, he'll he'll be raised with the the righteous, or he means like Elijah in the Old Testament, he will be raised up to God to heaven and be justified in the heavenlies in the bosom of Abraham. Mm. He'll be raised up. Um, but not what you you actually meant resurrected <laughs> yeah so it was quite shocking yeah to his uh, his time that's right yeah, and and, and very different from from their expectations yeah and, and from the expectations that you pick up you know as a christian in the pew mm. being taught from from uh, in the Old Testament, being taught through the lens of knowing about mm. Jesus in the New Testament, and then you, 
why are they so dense about what Jesus is saying? Well, they're not really big. <laughs> it's just what he was saying was so radically different from what they were expecting. Although, when you look back at it, as they do, and they go, oh yeah, that, that does chime with what the Old Testament is saying. Mm. But it's just a different way of reading it than we had been doing. Mm. Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it, it makes sense also to, to Paul, I think, when he was uh, discussing with the Pharisees. Mm. And, mm. Yeah. Yeah, and he calls, he plays off the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees against each other mm. because the Sadducees don't don't believe in the resurrection because mm. they, they only took as, as scripture the first five books of the Old Testament. Mm. Um, and so they, unlike the Pharisees, believed in resurrection. And that's that's also, that's one of those beliefs that there are, there are certainly hints of, at least in the Old Testament, but a, a Jewish belief in the resurrection had sort of solidified during that intertestamental period, mm. um, particularly through things like the Maccabean revolt, and when loads of Jews revolted against Rome, and then Rome slaughtered them, and they were they were considered martyrs. You know, they'd stood up for their religion, and they were killed. And there was like, you know, what what sort of recompense will God give to these these martyrs? Uh, and they solidified the the idea, picking up on those Old Testament hints of of the resurrection into the the new heavens and the new earth, and not simply a sort of when you die you go to be with God in the bosom of Abraham in paradise. Kind of, mm. that, that became a sort of well, yeah, that's a sort of in the meantime state of affairs mm. leading up to the resurrection, which is the main thing. Kind of yeah, so. You know, Paul is able to say, sort of, I stand before you today condemned because of my belief in the resurrection. Mm. Uh, and then all the Pharisees are going, oh, well, we're on Paul's side because he believes in the resurrection against the Sadducees. Hooray! It's like, yeah, until Paul says, because uh, Jesus has been resurrected. And they go, what? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, you fool. <laughs> yeah, as, as do the Greeks. Um, yeah. So um, I don't know. To, don't be shy in telling me to what extent you've engaged or got an overview or an idea of the sort of general perspective that I present in the Understanding yeah, Jesus I book. Yeah, uh, I just started to read your book, so right. I'm, uh, I'm just in the beginning of hmm. it. So I, I don't have a okay. overview of it yet, but I think. But from uh, from this session, it would be good also to get maybe some uh, points that would be uh, the main things to to keep studying uh -huh. uh, and to get out of this course. Right. So I think is uh, most relevant for, for the situation we have today. Yeah. Uh, so let me let me kind of. Um, I probably won't stick too too much to my PowerPoint unless there's something that particularly comes up. But a sort of overview is um, starting with this concept of, of uh, the, the English word doesn't translate well, but spirituality, a way of life, yeah, yeah, a, a way of life, uh, understood as this sort of combination of your head and your heart and your hands integrating together. And that everybody has one of these, you know, whether they're a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Christian or whatever, an atheist, um, but we fill it out 
in, in differing but overlapping ways. Mm. And to, to start looking at Jesus through this lens of a spirituality and sort of saying, what, what did Jesus teach about spirituality and the role that he thought he should play in your spirituality? Um, and I come back to that theme at the end and to kind of say, you know, Jesus, we have uh, sufficiently um, reliable historical access to the, the historical Jesus through the primary documents to be able to confidently say um, a certain number of very important things about him, whatever else we may or may not be able to say on the basis of those documents. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to assume that they're reliable. Mm. Uh, I'm not going to assume that they're scripture or anything like that. I'm going to treat them in the way that historians would treat any first century bit of writing, collection of writings, mm. using the standard kind of historical tests. Uh, that historians will use to say, um, even if, say, Josephus's Jewish history were to be a thoroughly unreliable mm. piece of propaganda or whatever, non-Christians often say that about the Gospels, you know, can't rely on their propaganda. Um, here are some historical tests that we, we have developed, and the more of these tests, uh, some piece of testimony or information in a historical document passes, the more trust we should put in that piece of information. Mm. Uh, so maybe it's generally rubbish, but because, hey, this bit of information passes half a dozen of these historical tests, mm. we should say, well, that's probably reliable. Mm. And if we approach the, the, the New Testament documents like that, I think we can build up enough bits of information that pass these tests to, to mount uh, an argument that Jesus made the, these certain claims about his role in our spirituality and, and that he and the early disciples gave five arguments for thinking that he was right about that mm. and that we, we can make the same arguments, those arguments are good arguments, they hold up today, particularly when you take them together. On, on mass is what's called a, a cumulative case. So I kind of encourage the reader, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to say, I'm going to give you this argument and then I'm, and then I'm going to conclude at the end, therefore Christianity is right, QED, I win, uh, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say, you will have your own spirituality as the reader of this book. Um, that may or may not make you quite you know, sceptical about Jesus' claim and, and who Christians think he is to some degree. Mm. I mean, you might be an atheist mm. coming to this. You might be an agnostic. You might be someone who believes there's probably some kind of a God out there, maybe, but I'm not sure that he's revealed himself. I'm not sure Jesus is who Christians think he is. Um, now, obviously, if you think there's some kind of a God, but you're not sure if Jesus is God, it will take maybe less evidence, less argument to convince you that Jesus is God than it would take to convince you if you were an agnostic. 
or if you were a fairly hardline atheist, you think, I'm pretty convinced that there probably can't be a god because of the problem of evil or whatever. See, so I say, okay, well, just, just know where you are when, when you start, and I'll, I'll give you these five handful of arguments. And after each argument, think, do, do, do I feel that there's some weight to that? Uh, that, that's arguments from the text? Yeah. From uh, the historical... From the historical yeah. uh, method applied to the primary documents yeah, yeah. to make the same five arguments I think Jesus and the disciples used mm. to convince people in their world mm. um, that he was who Christians think he was. Mm. Uh, and to say that you know, those, those ideas, they stem from Jesus and then the early church held them. They're not Know, like Dan Brown says, you know, mm. no one believed Jesus was divine until the Council of Nicaea in the fourth century. And mm. sort of, that's all a load of baloney. You know, that's, mm. Don't believe any of that. Um, that's ridiculous. And here are the historical arguments as to why. <laughs> you know, um, but uh, let me give you. You know, the, the, these arguments are basically. Um, Jesus' claims about himself in the context of his character, what's become known as the lunatic liar lord argument. Mm -hmm. You know, the, have you heard of the, the lunatic liar or lord argument? Uh, yeah, and also I think many times there will be added legend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's right. That formulation assumes that we've already shown that Jesus made certain elevated yeah. claims for himself. Um, right, if you don't assume that at the start, you have to add in legend and then work your way through it. But yeah. yeah. Um, so that there's this argument, there's the argument of his, uh, uh, his works, his miracles, mm. which I, I say uh, sort of sharpen this lunatic lie lord argument because he, his miracles are worked as signs that say something, that make certain claims about who he is when looked at in context. They're not, they're not just magic tricks for the sake of it. They, like his teaching, say things about who Jesus thinks he is, uh, and also, therefore, and also, their their claims to messiahship or whatever that give independent e evidence of that by being a miracle, if they if they happened. The, th <coughs> the third argument is his fulfilment of Old Testament prophecy, and. Yeah, the, the, the first one was uh, the miracles makes uh, claims. You can understand the miracles as claims. Yeah. Yeah, and the second was... And the miracles, of course, give, give evidence yeah. for the truth of those claims by, by being a miracle. Mm. Um, so we've got his claims in the context of his character. That's the lunatic liar lord thing. The claims made by the miracles in the context of miracles, which give evidence for them. His fulfilment of Old Testament prophecy mm. and the fact that he himself is a prophet. He prophesies certain things that came true as well. Mm. Um, and then I pick out one particular miracle for special treatment, um, which is his resurrection from the dead, mm. the argument from the resurrection. And end by looking at... Um, 
the role Jesus plays in people's religious experience in different ways through history and, and today. So a sort of religious experience argument um, of various forms. Uh, yeah, and and um, uh, and then you you tie the religious um, experience to uh, do you mainly take it to the text and uh, find out how people in acts and and uh, <coughs> letters uh, experienced it, or would you go through history and also today? Yeah, through history, also today. So I try and look at. Uh, to bring Jesus out of the historical into the present day towards the end of the book by saying this is something people experience as a you know a part of their way of life today their spiritual religious experience today and, and how would you uh, compare that to, to other uh, claims about the um, mm. religious uh, experience or yeah. would you just it out there and uh, say okay maybe maybe not but it's a part of the yeah and it's part of the the, the whole mm. cumulative case as i say i think i do say a little bit about what about religious experience in other traditions mm. that question but not very much but I, th I think i remember pointing out that you know the claim oh well you know people in lots of different religious traditions have religious experiences and so they kind of all cancel each other out that that is too easy uh, because uh, for example you know not all religious experience is the same mm. uh, people make claims for pantheistic religious experiences where they say you know I experienced oneness with the whole and I experienced the, my non-individuality and so on and I think you can argue from a philosophical viewpoint that, that those claims of religious experience must must be misinterpreted because they're, they're self-contradictory. So if you say, I experienced the non-existence of my, my self and my oneness with the one, what, what do you mean by I, my, me, self? <laughs> Um, who is meant to be having these experiences that you're reporting if you're saying there is no self that has experiences um, so there's a difference between you know not experiencing my individuality or not being aware of my individuality consciously that that's different from saying you know I consciously experienced that I wasn't consciously experiencing stuff as an individual and you know that doesn't necessarily seem to make sense or um, you know if, if someone from a Muslim tradition orthodox Muslim theology says you you don't you don't have a personal relationship with Allah mm. if you as a Muslim think you're having you know personal religious experience of God um, that actually contradicts mainstream Christian, uh, main, mainstream Muslim theology. <laughs> um, yeah, so 
Uh, but I think then you would uh, the closest would maybe be uh, this sort of uh, the uh, old uh, reach of Christianity. Mm. You have maybe some sort of uh, uh, direction that uh, you would not include in main Christianity, but mm. would have Mormonism and. Um, Right, yeah, but again, in, I mean, when you really look into the particulars of, of Mormon theology and worldview, yeah. I think it becomes very hard to see how you would have yeah. religious experience of God or Jesus. Um, that, um, you know, they, they, they physicalize God. Um, God is is a sort of evolutionary development of an infinite chain of physical beings who become divinized, um, and when you know when we go the sort of heavenly sort of idea for the Mormonism is you each being in charge of your own planet and like like God is you know in charge of ours and. <laughs> So you would do like uh, Björn was uh, talking about then uh, when they take this view or idea of Jesus and put it into their worldview, mm. then you would critique uh, how it fits in. Yeah, their, does that really fit in with the worldview? And you would then have the opportunity to say that uh, it at least is not um, the better understanding. Right. Yeah. So that that's the kind of yeah approaching it at a, at a worldview. Mm level but I, as I say yeah I don't do very much of that in this book I do just sort of present yeah. you know people have these religious experiences and, and there, there are arguments for taking religious experience at least at face value until you've got reason to doubt them mm. and as I say when then people will mention well what about other traditions or so on I would then say well I do have these reasons to doubt it which I don't have in the Christian case that would be really the way I would approach it um, Whereas I don't think there are comparable arguments against the Christian interpretation of those experiences mm. to not take them at face value and so on. Or look at claims of healing in the context of prayer to Jesus or what have you. Yeah. So saying, having, having started off with this view of spirituality, saying you know, maybe you're an agnostic, maybe you're this, maybe you're that, let me give you the first argument. If you think, well that argument doesn't convince me that Christians are true, but don't just stop there. Think, think to yourself, do I feel that there's some weight to that argument? Does that argument make me less sceptical about the Christian view of Jesus than I was without knowing that argument, than I would be without knowing that argument, as it were? And, and if you think it does, kind of, as it were, that's, kind of, that's a sponge. It's not a sponge big enough to soak up all of your scepticism, but it's a, it's a sponge that soaks up some of your scepticism the lunatic liar lord argument say, doesn't convince me that Christianity is true, um, but it makes me less sceptical. Mm. Now, remember, when I present you with the second argument, here are his, you know, the historical claims about his miracles and so on, um, you, should, you should remember that you're now less sceptical than you used to be mm. about the Christian. Don't revert back to default where you were. Mm. Because you've got to remember that, that it didn't convince you, but it did soak up some of your scepticism. Here's argument number two. Do the same thing. Does that soak up some of your scepticism, even if not enough of it? Well, 
now where are you over the you know if if, if we have a sort of chart with 50 50 and over the 50 percent is yeah i do just about believe that it's credible that jesus is Christ, who christians think he was maybe i started you know down here pretty pretty near the bottom because i'm a hardcore atheist or a little bit above that because i started as an agnostic or no okay argument number one moved me up a little bit but it didn't get me over the 50 50. Well, what, what has happened to your thinking about Jesus by the time I've gone, here's argument number two, here's argument number three, here's argument number four, here's argument number five. <laughs> has that at some stage pushed you over the line, as it were, uh, as the individual reader? Um, and I just give the reader responsibility for sort of keeping track of, of their thinking honestly about that as they go through. Um, and at least being able to think by the end of it, even if they're not convinced, they, can, they, they might well think to themselves, yeah, I can kind of see that if I had approached this evidence thinking there's probably some sort of God, then by the end of that process, I would probably think Jesus is the revelation of God that Christians think he is. The reason I don't, the reason I'm not a Christian is that the arguments weren't enough to convince me against my agnosticism, whatever. But that means if, you know, later on in life I meet, you know, I, I become convinced that there is some sort of a God, mm. I, I know Christianity is going to be a real live possibility for me. Mm. Um, so I've at least sort of laid a foundation for later development of, of thinking, even if I haven't convinced the reader all the way. Mm. Uh, I've, I've laid the foundations for later thinking, later development in that direction. Um, and it's a sort of way of trying to communicate it without saying, look, I've, I've given you the evidence, I've given you the argument, I've beaten it around the head, you ought to agree with me now, didn't you? Mm. <laughs> um, aren't you stupid for not agreeing with me, the, the Christian apologist? Because I, I'm empathising with you that I can see where you come from has a big influence on where you end up. Uh, and this book isn't about the is there a God issue. I mean, all the evidence that Jesus is who Christians think he was is also evidence that there's a God. <laughs> but um, if you already think there's a God, all the weight of that evidence can go into the who is Jesus question. Mm. Rather than it be all that, the weight of that evidence having to support the, oh, and is there even a God in the first place as well issue, you see. And so this is, I mean, the, the, the classical, so-called classical apologetic method uh, is to sort of go the two-step and argue first that there's a God and then that Christianity is the revelation of that God. Um, other apologists have different methodologies, but uh, even if you don't think, you know, that's the, o that's the only game in town... You, you can certainly see that it's a lot easier to convince someone that Jesus is God if they already believe in God. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, you, you, know, you might think with an evidentialist like Gary Habermas, say, that you could convince an atheist to become a Christian just by arguing the resurrection with them. Mm. Maybe. Well, yeah, maybe, but I think you probably reach more. Yeah. <laughs> uh, taking a sort of broader uh, approach and that's the sort of approach I take anyway so yeah you, yeah. you, you will go for the classical yeah I, I, I'm, I'm a, 
I'm a classical two-step, although I think that's consistent with a reformed epistemology. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think I think you you know you don't have to have arguments in order to be rational, mm. but there are good arguments, mm. and particularly in the in a context where you have lots of objections, you you probably get to a stage where you might need to have thought of some rebuttals at least of those mm. objections if they happen to trouble you mm. um, to keep on being wise and reasonable that's fine um, but yeah you don't like have to think the cosmological argument works or whatever in order to reasonably believe in God I think I think you can just sort of look out the window and go good grief look at creation there must be a God that's fine and that sort of in I think apologetics is really philosophy is unpacking and making explicit a lot of stuff that we intuitively mm. get. And since reason and philosophy starts, you have to start somewhere before you get anywhere. And so we start in intuition anyway. Mm. And we start with intuitions and later on we might question them. But we can only question our intuitions on the basis of, well, ultimately other intuitions anyway. So I like, well, let's start with what's intuitional and then, get, then let's get into this whole thing. You know? um, but it, it seems to me that, you know, for the majority of humans, anyway, it's just intuitive that there's some kind of a higher power that we need to have dealings with. And maybe it's revealed itself and miracles are possible. And, you know, like, you know. Almost the default. Position. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the sort of psychologically default position of the human condition. But also the, the in general. Uh, historically and transculturally, and mm. different cultures will then, by their dominant philosophy and developing religious traditions and so on, will shape how people view those intuitions mm. and how they understand them and so on. Um, that, I mean, there'll still be transcultural intuitions about i mean lots lots of moral intuitions are transcultural intuitions about rationality or mathematics or you know two plus two equals four whether you're a an indian or a african or a south american um, eating granny is frowned upon um, you may not frown upon eating granny from the next tribe mm. depending on where you come from mm. but that's because you're drawing limits upon who counts morally mm. differently um, it, it, you know it, it's not that some people think oh no it, it's it's really fine just to eat whoever you like it, it's just who gets to count as a valuable moral agent is is drawn differently by different cultures mm. Or, you know, moral relatives, things like, you know, there are like Eskimo tribes who, um, when people get elderly and the tribe moves on, they just leave them there in the snow to freeze to death. Mm. It's like, what a terrible way to treat, uh, don't they have the moral rule that you should respect your elders and value, you know, the older generation for their wisdom and so on? And Well, of course they do. Mm. It's just that they happen to have developed the worldview that in the afterlife, you spend eternity in the state in which you die. Mm. So you don't want Granny to be old and decrepit and suffering from arth arthritis and mm. 
uh, <laughs> you know, only seeing out one eye, what, or whatever, for eternity. And so the, obviously, actually, because of your value and respect for Granny, <laughs> uh, you want to acquiesce in her wish to, to die before she gets too old and decrepit so that she can have an enjoyable eternity. That's, well, of course you would, it, but it's, it's not the moral belief that's really shifted. It, it's a perspective on what nature of the afterlife is that's had an impact on the application of that transcultural moral belief. Mm. And you, you find a lot of that kind of stuff when you dig into the sort of sociology of what moral relatives will sort of try to draw and to say, oh, everybody has, you know, different cultures have different values and you know, there's no uh, consistency there. Actually, I think there's a lot of underlying consistency um, and the only way in which we can try and argue out any moral or philosophical difference anyway is by both of us agreeing on some sort of underlying intuition about how we go about arguing about stuff or um, whose opinions we should value or something like this, you know. Mm. But, but it seems to me uh, that uh, much of the apologetics uh, don't go that far down to start uh, discussing mm. the intuitions. Mm. It seems to me also in the classical apologetics, yes. may, maybe more in, in uh, reformed epistemology, I mm. think uh, Bandinger will go mm. down and argue that a Christian worldview would give you higher uh, uh, probability that your senses are mm. working properly yeah. than if you have if there is no God and we are all uh, yes. of evolution. And he's saying theism, it seems to me that many people will jump over this step and just yes. take what the majority of people would brand for. Yeah. But very much so. Yeah. So that this is why I, I think I really appreciate the sort of melding of the mm. reformed approach, the insights, genu I think genuine insights of the reformed epistemology with classical, yeah. I think genuine insights of classical apologetics, yeah. uh, and the growing insight in sort of the meta debate about how should we do apologetics about the breadth of, of rhetoric in its broadest form about engaging people's hearts and, and minds and defending the Christian w way of life as not just true but good and beautiful, uh, as, a, as attractive as a way of life, um, that there is an apologetic in, um, in beauty, in the desires of the human heart that C.S. Lewis talks about, in um, those intuitions of, you know, look at nature, look at mm. the world, look at your moral intuitions, mm. look at your rational intuitions. We all do assume that we're, we can be reasonable, mm. which worldview makes most sense of that, which some would sort of label a sort of transcendental argument. That sort of, um, I think there are insights from all of that and let's use whatever best engages with the particular audience we yeah, yeah. we have. I, I, I wouldn't sort of say, 
Well, because I, you know, like the insights of classical apologetics, let me first of all start by giving you Aquinas's five ways. Mm. And they're kind of going, yeah, but I, it's, I, I, I'm not too confused about there being some kind of God. It's, it's Jesus that I'm really what about? Yeah, yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. You know, like, okay, if they're happy to go there, let's go there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we can we can come back to firming up their. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> their philosophical theology of divinity later, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. In, in some sort of adaptive mm. uh, yes. way of uh, Yeah, I'm engaged at the moment in contributing to a book that's debating the resurrection, a new debate book. Um, going to be published by an atheist publishing house called Pitchstone in America. Yeah. And it's an old um, atheist friend of mine from the States who uh, is a retired English professor, but he's done some, published some stuff on reviewing Tom Wright's book on the resurrection yeah. in the New Humanist magazine and has done some uh, spoken debates on the resurrection with a an American New Testament scholar called Craig Blomberg yeah. did the historical reliability of the Gospels and various yeah. commentaries and things and he wanted the two of them to do a written debate and he's kind of roped me in as a Christian commentator yeah. and a guy called Richard Carrier yeah. uh, who's a Jesus mythicist I believe uh, as an atheist commentator um, and just in I'm just sort of finishing up my commentary on the debate chapter oh, yeah. contributing to this and, and I've put it into the form of um, people's expectations, their worldview, yeah. uh, the evidence that they think is relevant and how they go about gathering evidence, yeah. uh, and the different explanations, competing explanations, how they sort through the competing explanations of that evidence for the resurrection. Yeah, it's a tree. Uh, so the expectations, the evidence, and the explanation. And, and showing how those those expectations about things, not just about general worldview, but even the expectations about how should you go cl about collecting historical evidence, what's going to count as good evidence. Both uh, those two levels, of course, have then a huge effect on the debate in terms of what evidence the two debaters admit and what explanations they think are the best ones. Mm. So, uh, Carl, the atheist contributor, um, he you know he thinks I'm I'm open to the discussion and and the evidence. I I believe I've got to look at the evidence, but I don't think it's it's very good evidence, and I don't think we have any way of sorting through mm. which bits of the Gospels are historical and which bits are not. Mm. Um, although he himself will point to bits of the Gospels as being historical and other bits as not. Mm. So it seems that he thinks he has a way of telling the difference, although he says there isn't one. Uh, but then he proposes, he does propose at least one rule that I can see, which is a sort of argument from silence, mm. a sort of, which are notoriously tricky, but, you know, they are allowable. Um, you would think, wouldn't you, that given how momentous an event the ascension would be. Hello. Uh, that uh, first century Christian writers would mention it. Yeah. 
Um, but John doesn't mention it. Matthew doesn't mention it. Mark, the earliest gospel, doesn't mention it. Uh, it's only it's only Luke in Luke and Acts. Well, actually, there are a couple of New Testament letters that refer to it as well. But but uh, which I must note to self mention those. Uh, but uh, and since they, you know they don't mention it, and you'd think they would surely, mm. um, then what Luke says must be unreliable. Mm. Yeah. Um, and you might think, okay, there's, there might be something in that kind of rule. It's a tricky rule because it's a sort of absence of evidence. When there's an absence of evidence, an evidence of absence argument. And they're tricky to make, but at least he's put forward a, a rule. But he, he, he seems to think that even uh, that, that rule sort of trumps everything else. Not that he mentions anything else, but you know, the sort of standard criteria of historicity that. Craig Blomberg mentions but doesn't get into particularly in the debate unfortunately and I try and lay some of them out in my chapter a bit more like multiple independent attestation or the criteria of embarrassment which they, they do talk about a bit or um, uh, there being traces of Aramaic mm. coming through the, the Greek gospel being evidence of an early source or whatever these kind of standard criteria um, you know, I, I try and say, you know, here are, you know, there's this resurrection appearance and it passes these half a dozen mm. standard historical criteria. And so the fact that, you know, this appearance is only mentioned by this gospel and this gospel, but not by that one, to say, well, you, it's such a momentous thing. You'd think that, you know, a resurrection appearance by Jesus, that's really important. You'd think so-and-so would mention it. And he doesn't. And given the selectivity of the sources, and you, you look at things like Luke in, at the end of his gospel. If you just read the end of Luke's gospel, like the resurrection appearances, it does kind of seem like Luke is saying it basically all happens on Easter Sunday mm. uh, in Jerusalem, mm. and then Jesus is off. And then you turn to Acts. And Luke says, Jesus, you know, gave them many convincing evidences that he was alive over a period of 40 days. Mm. And then he was off. Mm. Um, and you look at uh, Matthew's gospel and he says, and, you know, he appeared to them in Galilee. Mm. And well, Luke doesn't mention anything about Galilee. And so, you know, Carl will say, there you go. Not only does Luke contradict Matthew, rather than saying, well, they are selectively reporting different things, or, or there are other ways of handling it as well, but we don't need to mention. Um, but he says, and Luke contradicts himself mm. between the Gospel and the Book of Acts. Mm. Luke contradicts himself, so it must be unreliable. He doesn't think, well, Luke says 40 days here, and here it reads as if it all happened on the same day, but it's pretty unlikely that Luke would be contradicting himself. You know, that's, <laughs> authors don't tend to do that. Uh, maybe there's another way of reading what he says here within the, again, the genre mm. knowledge that we can, we can gain from about first century biography and historical reporting and so on, what was counted as reliable and what was not. Uh, that sort of generously 
a, a home initiative of charity that doesn't read Luke as, as contradicting himself mm. and therefore not necessarily as contradicting Matthew either. Yeah. Uh, so he just sort of does, uh, to me it seems sort of a superficial reading of the material through sort of modern readership eyes mm. rather than going a little bit more into uh, sort of trying to understand that first century context, how people wrote, looking at things like the fact that, you know, okay, he does start off mentioning Easter Sunday, but then there were, he says, then this happened, then that happened. Mm. But the word then in the Greek is a pretty general sort of, and here's another thing that happened later. Mm. It doesn't sort of mean immediately afterwards, like, you know, 10 minutes later, it's like, well, how soon afterwards? Was it, was it the same day? Well, it doesn't, that term doesn't really commit him to anything, it's just he starts mentioning what happened on Easter Sunday, and he says, then, and then, and then, <laughs> and then. <laughs> and actually, that is linguistically consistent with what he says, says later about this all happened over a period of 40 days. <laughs> um, So again, that, that's, that's about the sort of hermeneutics of reading it in, in the original context, mm. rather than imposing a sort of, I've got to read this as if it were a newspaper report, you know, in a, in a modern newspaper, and this is sort of modern journalism, mm. uh, and I hold it to those kind of standards of accuracy, mm. rather than first century standards. And there's a guy called uh, Michael Lycona who's just written a book called um, Why Are There Differences in the Gospels? What Can We Learn from from first century biography, and I haven't finished reading it yet, but he's, he's, he's looking particularly at sort of the, the compositional textbooks that told people how to write history and biography back then, mm. what was considered good history, historical writing, what the limits were of considered of, you know, accuracy and going too far, and of course when you um, retell the same event, you don't want to be boring, so you retell it in a slightly different way or with a different emphasis, or you're reporting someone's uh, speech, but it's allowable to sort of tart it up and express it as well as you think they should have expressed it, as long as you're getting the main point across, because mm. that's the point. Um, <laughs> or, or even he, he looks at Plutarch, Plutarch's lives, which is the same author, and he, he does biography of various famous figures, and sometimes, therefore, retells the same event in a different biography of a different person. Mm. And you can look at the same event described by the same author in different ways, mm. which is interesting. And sort of he, he, one of the things Lycona argues is that it was permissible within that context to relocate events from one place to another in order to fit in with uh, a theme you were developing or that you'd mentioned that other place and um, he argues that in Matthew's Gospel, one of the appearance accounts in Matthew's Gospel that is set in Galilee, he says the emotional description of the event is the same as the appearance in the upper room in Jerusalem. And he says that appearance in the upper room probably happened in Jerusalem as reported by Luke and John independently. But Matthew has relocated that appearance story to Galilee. 
Mm. Um, and that's fine. That's not inaccurate by the standards of first century history. And he does that because earlier on in Matthew's Gospel, it's in Galilee that Jesus starts teaching the disciples about you know his resurrection from the dead and uh, you know I will suffer and be raised from the dead and so on. And then at the end, when he's doing resurrection appearances, he, he just you know and he has 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 Jesus appear in Galilee, because the point that he's trying to get across is not where did the appearance happen. <laughs> The point he's getting across is what Jesus said about him rising from the dead, that came true. And these guys were witnesses to it. Mm. And, and if you said to him, but Matthew, you said it happened in Galilee. And Luke and John said, it, said, you know, this was in Jerusalem. You're contradicting each other. He would have said, huh? <laughs> You've missed the point. <laughs> you know, that's, not, that's not what I'm trying to say. <laughs> kind of... Um, So what we mean by historical accuracy should be shaped by an understanding of first century culture. It's not that they didn't care about accuracy, but it's like where was their emphasis on what counts as accuracy? And we, we have different emphases today. So I often used example, people say, um, you know, um, the president of United, the president today said such and such. Mm. And then you look at the sources and you say, well, actually, it was the president's press officer who said it in a White House briefing. Mm. Um, but the journalist doesn't say the, the presidential press officer today said that the president said such and such. Uh, and they might use the expression, uh, uh, today the White House announced that you think, hang on, the White House didn't say anything, it's an inanimate object. That's not accurate. <laughs> you know? But we all know that what they mean by that is the President said, and he may have said that through an official spokesman who was representing him mm. in a briefing that the journalist attended. Mm. Um, and so we don't jump on, jump on the journalist for being inaccurate. That's because we've just got this assumed background of what we are focusing on and counting as the, the, the accurate communication of information or testimony. Um, and that's slightly different these days than it used to be. Mm. You know, so you look at, look at the stories of um, Peter denying Jesus. Um, was the sec I think it's the second serving girl uh, that he denies knowing Jesus to. Is that, is that second serving girl, is it the first serving girl again? Or is it a different serving girl? Well, it depends which gospel you read. Mm. But you know, the, the point is he denied knowing Jesus to a series of, of figures and you know, the point of the story is not really who they were. <laughs> um, some people will try will try ways of sort of reconciling these these different accounts, and I think that that sort of project there is value in the, that project of looking at are there consistent ways of understanding these different reports of you know when they say one 
angel at the tomb or two angels at the tomb or whatever. Well, you know, if there were two, there were one. And again, we know it's called spotlighting. It's perfectly fine to mention just one figure out of a number of figures if they are kind of the most important figure. Yeah. But would you say that the main point of this would be to establish a sort of a general reliability that if there are few of these uh, difficulties then mm. you could in a more general way uh, re uh, think of it as a general reliable it, Yeah, I think it's more a defensive argument. It's more saying when we when we read the material sympathetically rather than with an automatic sort of dismissive attitude you don't have to bend over backwards and end up sort of having really convoluted theories to explain how all the all the, it all fits together mm. um, but when you just read it with a bit of sympathy you can see that actually there are there are very really very few occasions where there seems to be a real sort of difference in the main point that's being said mm. and when you read that against again against the context of what was understood as good biography and history in the first century that the gospels fit in very much within that mainstream view of good history at the time and that, that that's how we should understand their intent their authorial intent about reliability and uh, again you know we read scripture in in line with the kind of literature that it is and when you do that you don't it doesn't give you re sufficient reason to say oh look there are loads of contradictions between things therefore it can't be reliable mm. you say yeah this kind this kind of reads just you know just as confusingly to modernize as reading Pliny mm. or, jo or Josephus or Tacitus or whatever um, it's probably you know I've got no, I've got no reason from just reading the text here to think it's any less reliable as history than Pliny mm. or whatever um, uh, so if if you're going to read you know get your classical history from reading reading Pliny mm. you 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 can't then toss out the Gospels and the New Testament letters and so on as unreliable mm. for reasons that you wouldn't apply yeah. in the, to be consistent. Yeah. And then what kind of uh, rules would you apply to uh, sort between mm. the, maybe you could call it uh, overnatural causes uh, or uh, overnatural um, uh, things in the text. Uh, I think there will be this kind of uh, of uh, text also in daughter uh, or documents. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, absolutely. You would uh, ascribe them as uh, some sort of uh, non-true uh, or yeah. figurative or something. Yeah, and I think um, how people filter that, including how Christians filter that. Yeah is mainly affected by the worldview we, we bring to it. Yeah. So we say all ancient literature mentions you know the gods or miracles yeah. or their religious experience or, or whatever and in terms of interpreting the claims that are being made within the text yeah. we have to read it in that context and then we 
ask ourselves the questions, do we share that context? Do we believe mm. that context and do we believe that particular claim? Mm. Um, and sometimes our context as readers may be f closer or further away from the context of the material that we're reading. So obviously a modern day atheist reading a piece of Babylonian literature mm. is going to be further away from the, the worldview of the original author than a modern day Christian might be. Mm. Because at least the Christian and the ancient Babylonian share a worldview in which there is a supernatural. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> in a historical method mm. be some rules how to uh, differentiate uh, if we want to uh, lay the, the um, foundation, historical foundation mm. for the resurrection of mm -hmm. Jesus, uh, it seems to me that we should ha apply a general rule mm. to the study that in some way should make the resurrection historically plausible, mm. but the uh, texts, uh, other texts, maybe about the uh, polytheistic gods in other documents, mm -hmm. uh, not so possible. Yes, yeah. It, it seems to me that you should use the same rule mm -hmm. in both documents. And yes. To then the conclusion that even though these ones are not plausible, mm -hmm. the resurrection still seems plausible. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that, and I, I think you, you certainly. You, I think if you admit the possibility of miracles and the supernatural, you need to take particular claims on a case-by-case -case basis yeah. and judge them all on the same rules. Yeah. Uh, in, in terms of what is the evidential basis for yeah. these claims. But it's, it will still be the case that the, the worldview presuppositions of everyone looking at those that data will affect what we say about explaining it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I saw a debate now, uh, just before Christmas, with uh, Stefan Gustafsson, mm -hmm. and the two other people, I think they would relate to the Jesus Seminary mm -hmm. uh, tradition, mm. and they had in their presupposition that, uh, that they cannot uh, come to the conclusion mm. with any supernatural. Right. Uh, content and therefore yeah. the resurrection is uh, already from the beginning mm, uh, mm. of rule and they therefore would look to other explanations uh, like uh, going to the wrong tomb and things like this right. to, to explaining it yeah, but yeah. Uh, to me it seems like and I don't think Stefan did bring that up that there should be mm. uh, some method Ah, uh, yeah, I see what... should be open to, to, okay, maybe open to the supernatural, but not ending up with all mm. that is supernatural in old documents to be true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, what is the criteria? Yeah. That so, the, I think there are two areas here. First of all, there are, there, are, there are the historical criteria for saying, what is the relevant evidence that we should take into account? So the, the, the you know the rules of multiple attestation, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, for saying, and on which most you know atheist or Jewish or agnostic or whatever New Testament scholars will agree on those rules 
ending up with data like Jesus died from crucifixion, there was probably a burial in an empty tomb, although fewer say that. People sincerely believed they met Jesus after he was dead. They very quickly formed the belief that he'd been resurrected and they were sincere about that. Yeah, and then they come to, what's the best explanation for this? Now there are rules and a discussion about what, what rules are there for, what, make, what counts as a good explanation of something historically speaking. Uh, and of course, again, worldview starts affecting this. So if one of your rules is, you know, Jesus said what I'll say, one of our rules of historical explanation is the explanation must not be supernatural. Mm. Yeah, I think that, well, that's a bad rule. That's like making your mind up regardless of what the evidence is. Mm. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm sure Craig in that book will probably talk about this a bit. Rules yeah. of of explanation choice, things like um, explanatory scope, explanatory power. Um, if your proposed explanation were true, would it make the existence of the evidence you have like, more likely than not? Mm. Explanatory scope, does, does your explanation explain lots of different bits of, of data? sort of it's it's there's a simplicity to the explanation so if Jesus did rise from the dead well that would explain why the tomb was empty and why people thought they saw him mm. um, whereas if he didn't rise from the dead and you think there was an empty tomb and you think people thought they saw him you probably end up giving one explanation for why the tomb's empty mm. and a different explanation for why people thought they thought they saw him afterwards uh, so that's a more complex explanation in a sense. Um, how ad hoc is your explanation? That is, uh, does your the particular explanation you give have evidence in its favour mm. or not? How, how plausible is the explanation? That is, on the basis of your, ba of your general background knowledge, does, does your general background knowledge indicate that that kind of thing that you're proposing as, a, as an explanation might be expected to happen. And especially probably in, in this area, the worldview will... Yes. Dramatically. Well, dramatically, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, when people say, oh, okay, let's explain away the resurrection in terms of hallucinations, okay? Mm -hmm. That explanation has a degree of plausibility. Because we do know from our background knowledge that people do hallucinate things mm -hmm. that aren't real, that aren't really happening. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there is some plausibility to that explanation. Um, it's completely ad hoc because we have no particular evidence relating to the disciples, say, that any of them were prone to having hallucinations or were suffering from mental illness. Or, and if we had such evidence, that would be additional evidence for a hallucination hypothesis. Mm. If you already knew that Peter regularly suffered from seeing pink elephants and you know okay so there's sort of general background and particular data um, uh, what about the explanatory power of that explanation okay if they suffered from hallucinations of seeing a resurrected Jesus yeah that would explain why they thought they saw a resurrected Jesus right but um, but why would they hallucinate a resurrected Jesus when that's against all their cultural expectations, as we were 
were talking about. Why do they all hallucinate very similar things in a very short time frame? Mm. Why do the hallucinations stop after 40 days? Why are the hallucinations all coordinated in such a way that in group, what must be group hallucinations, because there's good evidence for group appearances, uh, why is there no evidence that, well, some people in the group saw Jesus, but others didn't? Mm. Or why do they all see him and hear him? Mm. Uh, why isn't it that, I mean, if you look at the, the scientific research on, say, grief hallucinations, where it's, it's well known that, that people who've suffered recent bereavement tend to have hallucinations of the dearly departed. Mm. Um, but a very, it's a very small percentage of people who actually think, think they see mm. that recently died, that they're grieving for. It's more, it's more general to sort of think you maybe hear them or you felt their touch. Mm. Because you've got to sort of trace memory of that. Mm. Um, anyway, or you felt their presence. Mm. You know. Or you, you, you thought you did see them and you tried to talk to them and as soon as you did that they vanished. Um, and you don't have evidence of people engaging in long conversations with the departed where the departed says surprising things that they, that they, they hadn't sort of thought of before uh, and, where, and where they hear, they're talking with them and seeing them and touching them and they have a meal together and it lasts for several minutes and there are ten of you all having this, and that just, that's not in the psychological literature. That is, that's basically a miraculous hallucination. Yeah. Okay, so, okay, if there was such a miraculous hallucination, <laughs> but then you're shifting where the miracle is in order to kind of get the explanatory power out of the explanation, yeah. uh, and you're shifting it in a way that's against the grain of the primary sources, and what about explanatory scope? Okay, if they hallucinated Jesus, they might think they saw him. But then when Peter and John run to the tomb to check on it, presumably the dead mouldering body of Jesus would still be in there. And they'd go, oh, oh now here's, here's Jesus's corpse. We must be hallucinating. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then you need another explanation as to you know, why the, the tomb is empty and make it more. So, uh, when you apply those kind of criteria, you can see, yeah, there are, there are some explanations that have certain things going for them. Mm. But in the comparison of theories, when you include within the, the pot of possibilities, mm. Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah. Jesus rose from the dead comes out really well in that comparative exercise. Yeah, and, and it also seems to me that in the discussion with Stefan, the two people from uh, the tradition of Jesus seminary, mm. uh, they seem seem to think that their explanation was uh, good history work. Yeah. But it, there seems to me that there should be a, a bigger um, uh, differentiation mm. between mm. what is the actual ev evidence. Yeah. And then you should this we know with pretty <coughs> certainty, and yeah. you know, and then you should make a pause and say what could explain. Yes. This. And, and here our worldviews become really important. Yeah, and, yeah. They would say that we are doing history, but you are doing belief stuff. 
Yeah. But now we're, we're all doing yeah, belief yeah, stuff, yeah, and yeah, it should be <laughs> yeah, more, more equal. It should yes. be a, a stock with win, and I think there would be quite quite uh, mm. Uh, mm. Uh, in uh, um, the sale. They would agree, I think, on much of the uh, historicity. Yeah within the text but it's the explanation that's different yeah and it seems to me many times to be motivated maybe by these assumptions like naturalism or mm, mm, mm. definitely yeah and that that plays out in all sorts of academic fields yeah. that crucial issue from discussions about um, biological history to discussions about how you do i'm reading a book at the moment about old testament studies yeah, yeah. Uh, and the influence of a so-called Copenhagen school in Old Testament studies mm -hmm. where they are influenced by a, a theory of knowledge stemming from Immanuel Kant yeah. and they're taking that basis and then approaching doing the history of Israel mm -hmm. from uh, a particular philosophical viewpoint mm -hmm. uh, and but then saying you know this is good history and you people who disagree with us, you're not doing proper history because you don't share our philosophy of, yeah, yeah. of, of historical, what counts as historical knowledge and mm. so on. Um, uh, but as, as you say, if we, if we try and separate out, we can say, well look, all of us from whatever worldview, we can all agree that, that a piece of historical testimony is more plausible if you've got five different authors independently saying the yeah. same thing than if you've only got one. Yeah, yeah, also maybe um, we disagree with these people that if you exclude any supernatural or any right. or anything, maybe this is the best explanation yeah. you have got here. But yeah. You should be very clear on what you are excluding. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and, and same in, in different yeah. fields as well. Um, yeah, so I mean Philip Johnson in um, his book Darwin on Trial, where he, he famously sets out and, and sort of saying, I think of course, if you start with naturalism, some kind of evolutionary theory must be true and, and showing ways in which that influences the thinking yeah. in the field. Yeah. And he wants to kind of say, what happens if we... If we and, and, and actually, there are Christians who do a sort of mirror image of that, who have a sort of literalistic reading of Genesis. And they say, this is what scripture says. And now, whatever science says must fit in with that. And I will argue against any any apparent evidence that conflicts with that, and try and argue for scientific evidence that does fit with that. But I'm approaching it with with a, with my mind made up on what the result is. Mm. The, mo the result must be something that fits this picture. He says, well, "What happens if we don't do that? We just say, what is the evidence here?" Mm. And uh, here's a whole range of different possible explanations. Mm. Which one makes most sense of the data, <laughs> as you were saying? Uh, what does the field look like if we take that approach? Uh, and we, we don't presume either a sort of creationist view, mm. Christian view of it or whatever, or, no, but neither do we presume a naturalistic mm. view. But uh, shouldn't that be a fair way even for uh, a Christian who do believe uh, have a set of belief, uh, or uh, maybe to, to um, mm. the first chapter of uh, yeah. Genesis, you could still take this approach uh, in meeting other people and hold his belief 
Yeah, and he could take belief and, and ask still what is the evidence and what kind of explanation do exist. Yeah, I mean he could take that approach yeah. himself. If if you took the approach of saying, mm. um, just what are the agreed rules of of, of gathering the scientific data? Um, what does that data seem to be? Here's a range of possible explanations. Mm. Um, here's also my scriptural data as a Christian. Mm. Um, let me try and do what I, what I consider to be good hermeneutics on that. What seems to be the range of, of plausible readings and what seems to be the best out of those readings. And oh, how do I how do I fit? Can I fit what I think of as the best reading mm. with the best? evidence from from the book of nature with the book of god how do i integrate these can i integrate them does that process of trying to to put them together at least at least consistently change my opinion in one way or the other mm. and and it could go both ways there's no reason why why you couldn't have a situation where you had strong reason from from hermeneutics and belief in scripture to think um you know view, view x Mm. And, and weak reasons from natural science mm. to believe you why, and a good reason to think that those two views contradict each other, and it would be perfectly rational to say, well, view X trumps view Y, because I've got better reasons for it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's fine. Um, but that's sort of, that's at the tail end of the process, yeah. as, as you're saying, yeah. rather than feeding the, what the eventual result of the process must be mm. in at the beginning. Mm. Yeah, so it's, it's, it is about the methodol methodology of the approach rather than about um, uh, sort of arguing in a circle in the, in the sense of building in the conclusion to the start of the process of exploration. But I was very influenced, I, I'm, a little bit of personal history on there, we're drifting a little bit, but the, the methodology applies. Yeah. I, I myself used to be a, would have classed myself as a theistic evolutionist. Yeah. And then I started, when I was at university doing philosophy, started studying philosophy of science, I started reading Christian philosophers of science involved in the intelligent design movement. And reading Johnson and reading people like Stephen Meyer and William Dembski and and so on, and thinking, they convinced me that they had their philosophy of science right. Mm. And in particular, I also I read a book um, uh, by J.P. Morland mm. on Christianity and the nature of science. And and Morland uh, argues, I think, quite convincingly to me in there that um, that young Earth creationism can be a scientific position. Mm. Um, he doesn't argue that it's true. <laughs> um, uh, he gravitates more towards an, an old earth yeah. position, he says, although he, he's vacillated a, a little bit between them. Um, but he sort of argues from a philosophical viewpoint that there's nothing to stop young earth creationism being a, 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 a counting as a, as a scientific viewpoint um, and that you should approach you know, science rejecting this, this sort of methodological naturalism that we're talking about, like the Jesus Seminar bring to historical studies or 
people bring to Old Testament studies a certain philosophical viewpoint, um, uh, and that you know that it was you know it ha should have a legitimate voice on the table, mm. uh, and that that philosophy of science, that sort of so-called open philosophy of science, was the, was the right way to go. Mm. Um, I think he's, think he's right about that. You know, I'm not personally convinced of a young earth position. I am now convinced of an ID position, and, but that's, that is consistent with, with a number of different interpretations in itself. But um, that, that sort of open philosophy of, of science, we don't constrain it one way or the other by, by sort of limiting the field of possible explanations mm. at the beginning. Um, so it's, well, it's no surprise when you end up at the end of your conversation with an explanation that's from that limited pool. Mm. <laughs> and it may, may be a pool of one that you've started out with. You know, so that's not very informative. Um, whereas if you said, hey, there's, you know, there's you know, half a dozen different plausible views of this thing, um, which one am I, am I going to pick? Um, then it's quite interesting if you say, I've picked this one for the following reasons, you know, <laughs> uh, over against the others, using these common rules of, you know, I can explain to you in, in terms of explanatory power and scope and ad hocness and, and so on. Yeah. I mean, Carl, in the debate book on the resurrection I'm doing, Carl accepts the crucifixion and the resurrection appearances, at least some of them, and uh, early belief in the resurrection, he is not keen on the, the burial and empty tomb mm. accounts. He thinks there probably wasn't an, an empty tomb. Um, but he has a, a potential explanation for why it was empty if there did happen to be one. Okay. So it doesn't matter too much that he doesn't think there was one because as Craig Blomberg does think there was an empty team, mm. but they can just get on with arguing about what's, you know, is that a plausible explanation of it or not, anyway. Um, so, yeah, he, he, he thinks that, that first century and crucified Jew would have been, I think, is it Crossland that argues it's just, you know, tossed in the pauper's grave and wouldn't have been given a, a, a burial. Mm. Uh, and so that whole sort of burial empty tomb tradition is suspect from the beginning. And what probably happened is that the, some Christians bribed the, the Roman guards at the, at the crucifixion. If you do think there was an empty tomb, they, they just bribed the guards to, to bury Jesus. And then the guards thinking, oh, we don't want to get find out. They came back later and nicked the body and threw it away so that they, their, their um, t bribery taking wouldn't be found out. But you're not uh, doing history anymore, are you? <laughs> it's it's completely it's, ad hoc. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's not proper <laughs> historical method. It would be uh, worldview, multi-weighted way yeah. explanation, yeah. the yeah. historical uh, yeah, and, and, and interesting, Carl basically admits that his, his primary objection is worldview-based. Yeah. He says he can't believe in a, in a God who allows such suffering, and he, and he can't believe that Jesus is, is the revelation of God because it, it, it's too, you know, you've got to believe in Jesus to go to heaven, and that, and that means that God is basically condemning millions of people to hell because they don't have an opportunity to learn about Jesus. That's mm -hmm. his 
kind of theological objections. It's the problem of evil and the problem of what about those who haven't heard about Jesus kind of thing. And for neither uh, neither Cray, Blomberg nor myself, it's, it's the problem of evil an issue for different reasons and, and neither of us believe that God sends anyone to hell just because they're ignorant. <laughs> so uh, we don't have a theological issue there that, that, that Carl does and we try to say to him that there are ways of Christianly reading these scriptures that don't have these results, mm. um, that you don't have to, to believe that. I mean, some Christians may believe that, but we don't, and we don't think that's the most plausible readings. And um, he also says, if you, if you believe Jesus was who Christians think he was, you've, what about the problem that he's a, he's a false prophet? Because yeah. he predicted his second coming within a generation, and he didn't. Mm. So he takes those, uh, the Olivet Discourses, and Jesus's predictions about the temple and the second coming and argues that he predicted his second coming in his lifetime and he was wrong about that. And again, neither Blomberg nor myself think that Jesus did predict his second coming within his lifetime. Then there are better ways hermeneutically of reading those passages. Mm. But that, yeah, that is his main, that's mm. really where the rubber hits the road for yeah. him, I think. Than some uh, some explanations, and yeah. of yeah. course, he then will look for the best explanations yeah. left. So long as he can come up with some sort of naturalistic theory that has some plausibility to it, which of course you, you can do, as I say, he says, well, that's much 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 more believable than the Christian view, because well, we we know people who hallucinate and they have. You know, people get false memories after after time, and people look at the grieving, and they see someone in the crowd, and they think they see the departed for for a bit, and you know these kind of things. And there may be some sort of conglomeration of these plausible naturalistic things will explain away uh, that. And uh, it, it still seems to me that what they should be doing was say, I don't know. Mm. Could it be mm. like this? But they don't know. Yeah. He, he, well, yeah, Craig says, I, and I don't say, he says, I don't think this is what happened. Yeah, yeah. He says, maybe this is what yeah, happened. Yeah. I don't think you can prove or disprove the resurrection, mm. but I think there's not, there's not enough evidence to prove it because I have plausible yeah. naturalistic alternatives. And of course, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to push the point that um, the, the, the question is, is the resurrection a better yeah. adequate it clearly is an adequate explanation mm. if a resurrection happened it would explain all the evidence we have mm. the question isn't can a resurrection explain it it's does it explain it better than any of the naturalistic alternatives and Carl is kind of hooked up on you know there's some plausibility to theory x y or z naturalistically um, and that's all I need Whereas I'm, I'm trying to push, you know, there are more criteria of what makes a good explanation than, than is there some plausibility to it. What about the power, the scope, the ad hocness, uh, fitting in with the surrounding data, uh, convincingly, etc. Um, but for him, yeah, because he has this sort of worldview motivation, it's it's like any halfway decent naturalistic theory with with a measure of plausibility to it. Well, maybe that's what happened. I don't know. I'm not claiming, you know, of course it's ad hoc. There's no evidence for it. But that must, surely that must trump 
resurrection because that means believing in a miracle and believing in a miracle means believing in God and believing in God means believing that all this suffering is allowed by an omnipotent you know and that well. etc and that Jesus sends people to hell just for not believing in him and and that you know, and that's where it really comes from yeah but still if he should be fair he should at least admit that it should point to something transcendental it shouldn't be the Christian God Right, well, it might, yeah, it might not be the, that's, that's yeah, um, certainly, I mean, as we said at the beginning, there are, there are other worldviews that try and, yeah, uh, try and co-opt the Christian story into, into their worldview. That is an interesting point. Um, uh, yeah, you know, is, is he a Hindu avatar or, uh, but then, you know, he, he's coming at it from a secular materialist yeah. worldview, so... Uh, yeah, it's pretty much, you know, it's, uh, I think for him, the sort of the live options, as it were, are, are either naturalism or, or Christianity. That's kind of his cultural um, background, in a sense, as well. Um, you know, he, he is not one of these sort of rabid new atheists, kind of his, he has family members who are Christians, and uh, he, res he respects Christianity and sees there's a conversation to be had and mm. we should look at the evidence and yes Christians are right that Jesus existed and was crucified and you know emit some of the data and they're, they're actually him and Blomberg are able to have a conversation with each other rather than talking completely past each other mm. and it's interesting we've structured the whole book to, to be honest about where we're all coming from and say no, none of us are unprejudiced or unbiased we all open with a, a sort of biographical chapter mm. Uh, telling our sort of life story and why we have the position where we've come to the position we do about Christianity and Jesus um, what our upbringing was and our educational experience and you know what have we researched into and written on and published on and why and um, just to say like okay you may think you know I'm biased but do you remember he's biased too like we all and we all recognize that we're biased and we're all trying that our best to overcome that through mutual discussion and accountability and trying to say okay can we get at some sort of rules of what makes for good evidence what makes for a good explanation um, we do recognize that we all have different worldviews and that affects how we interpret things so let's let's be clear about what our worldviews are and why we think how they affect so, you know, Carl in saying, really, I don't believe in the resurrection because I think believing in Jesus' resurrection would mean believing in his messiahship. But that contradicts what I think is his failed prophecy here. Mm. Or, but that would mean facing the problem of evil mm. in a way that I don't think is raised by my atheist worldview. I, and I think there are bigger problems of evil raised by an atheist worldview, mm. including the problem that on an atheist worldview I don't think there would be any such thing as evil. Mm. But, you know, that's my perspective on it, not, not his. But he's being clear on, yeah, okay, I, have, I can have some empathetic understanding of mm. if I thought in, uh, in order to believe in the resurrection, I also had to face an insuperable problem of evil argument, mm. that problem of evil argument would probably trump, mm. you know, fallible historical data from the first century 
mm. that you're building this sort of historical, you know, historical argument of probability versus the logical problem of evil, mm. QED. Mm. Well, yeah, okay, I can understand why you, mm. I think you're wrong, but, but I, I, well, I help people to understand, mm. yeah, that I see what is shaping the discussion here. Mm. Uh, uh, and I think even if, you know, we, the debate won't, it's not one of those, you don't do it so that you get agreement between the debaters or mm. what have you. Uh, but it, it does clarify mm. exactly this issue that we're looking at of, well, hang on a minute, what is the difference between the expectations you're bringing to the table? What rules, do we agree on what rules we're using to even decide what relevant evidence is here? Mm. Do we agree on what rules make for what is a good explanation? Do we understand how our differing worldviews are affecting what pool of explanations are live possibilities mm. for you, for me, for them? Um, or could we ever sort out this discussion about what happened to Jesus if we haven't sorted out a discussion about are miracles possible? Or, mm. And maybe that's linked to is there a God or not? Because basically if there's a God, then miracles are possible. Mm. Uh, uh, and so on. So, you know, maybe we need to backtrack a bit. And again, like with the, the Understanding Jesus book saying, hey, you may be an agnostic, you may be an atheist, you may be a philosophical theist, you may be a Jew, you may be a Muslim. Mm. And I, I can't handle that within a space of one book, even if it's a pretty thick one like this. Mm. That's a library. <laughs> I, I cannot address a library to you in one book. Mm. Uh, but I can help you to, to see, oh, this is the shape of where, how things fit together. Mm. Uh, and by the time I've read further down the library shelf, <laughs> mm. I could perhaps revisit this Jesus issue with a different perspective, mm. uh, sort of knowing where that will lead me. Mm. Yeah, that's the kind of idea. Yeah. I think that in that, I think it's in that debate book with, with Craig and Crossan where, um, where, where, where Crossan takes this sort of non-realist view of, of God and theological language and says that he, he believes in God even though God dis, didn't exist when the dinosaurs existed. Kind of Craig, Craig push, pushes him in the debate and says, you know, so, you know, do you think that there was a God when humans didn't exist and only dinosaurs were roaming the earth? And, and he sort of says, well, well, Basically, he gets out of him that no, he doesn't. <laughs> uh, what he means by God is, you know, humans use language about God to express our sort of worldview. Like, um, he's not a realist about it. And and later on in the in the sort of reflections on the debate part of the book, Crossland sort of says, yeah, you know, I I, I see from this debate that I should be more upfront about this. Mm. That you know, actually, I, I I don't have a theistic worldview, and that does affect how I mm. how I view things. And it, it's just confusing to say, you know, yeah, I believe in God, or whatever. When I, when I don't really mean it in the way that. Yeah, yeah, you have to clarify <laughs> what you mean with it. Uh, yeah. To, yeah, of course. It's, you know, at least at least say something like, uh, I like using God talk, but I think that's all I'm doing. I'm using it in a sort of Don Cupid, uh, humanist kind of way. I like that sort of religious language way of expressing my my positivity about living in the world or yeah. like <laughs> I, I, I respect that as long as it's clarified. It's clear, yeah. And then you can 
you point out that the venue will exclude these right. explanations. Yeah. And then, yeah. Yeah. And uh, it would be obvious to, to the reader or mm. the listener that uh, there is an issue there. Yeah. And I think that comes out really, really nicely in, in that particular. Uh, will the real Jesus please stand up for those listening on the podcast yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, book uh, mm. yeah. yeah and in the, the book I've just written about the, the new atheists and the historical Jesus getting at Jesus start looking at the sort of hypocrisy of the, the new atheist view of, of, of the majority sort of because can't paint them all with exactly the same brush but the general view they, they sort of have as you religious people just have blind faith mm. We, new atheists, stand up for reason, argument, and the scientific method. Mm. Um, your problem is you don't have any evidence for your belief. Mm. You should have evidence for all your beliefs. Mm. And of course, miracles can't happen because David Hume famously argued that, philosophically, mm. uh, that uh, miracles aren't believable, mm. or they couldn't happen, or even if they can, they're not, belief not rationally believable, whatever amount of evidence you have. Mm. So evidence is actually irrelevant to whether or not you believe in miracles. Uh, we don't believe in miracles because of our philosophy. Mm. Um, therefore, we're not really going to bother engaging carefully with any of the evidential issues about mm. the resurrection or Jesus or whatever. Um, let's half-heartedly promote Jesus' mythicism and behave as if the last 150 years of New Testament studies didn't happen. Mm. Um, let's sort of draw on again German 19th century early 20th century mm. theology uh, and um, just sort of assume that all religious believers basically have the same grounds for their belief i.e. none mm. so look Christians don't you notice that that when uh, they say the angel Moroni appeared to Brigham to, to um, I've forgotten his name, it's gone out of my head, the, the, Mormon, the guy who set up Mormonism uh, and uh, revealed the, the golden plates to, to him uh, that uh, you, know, you think this is, this is pretty obviously all a con job, there's no, no reason to believe this, no good evidence for it. Um, don't you realise that you believe your Christianity on an equal lack of evidence? You know, why would you trust the Gospels when you don't trust um, the book uh, the book of Abraham or the book of uh, this or the other from the Mormon mm. scriptures and uh, you know have, have they looked seriously into the evidence for the reliability of the Gospels versus the evidence for the reliability of the uh, take the example I took the book of Abraham whatever which is a bit of Egyptian papyrus that mm. Joseph Smith that's his name um, completely falsely claimed to translate uh, back in the days when uh, no one in America could translate Egyptian hieroglyphs, mm. they only just started translating it. Uh, a French guy had worked out how to translate hieroglyphs, mm. and later on, when they, they they actually found the manuscript of some of the manuscripts from the Book of Abraham and translated it, and even Mormon translators sort of translated it and said, basically, this is about nothing like Joseph Smith said it was talking about. He's completely mm. misinterpreted what these scrolls are about. Um, mm. it, uh, it's completely unreliable. Mm. Oops, mm. <laughs> you know, um, uh, and there's just no comparison <laughs> between Mormon 
uh, claims and biblical claims uh, when you compare things like what's what's the archaeological evidence for the Book of Mormon versus the the um, Gospel of Luke and John and and so on. Um, what is the archaeological evidence for the reliability of the Book of Mormon? Um, zero or ninety nine point nine percent zero at least, maybe one or two. Um, semi-interpretable, debatable things at, at most. Mm. Um, does it make claims that are flatly contradicted by, you know, again, most mainstream sociologists and uh, ethnographers and so on. They, they, they claim that the American Indians are basically descended from the lost tribe of, of Jews, of Israelites, um, at a certain historical period and, uh, you know, even down to like the DNA evidence shows that Americas were settled sort of 20,000 BC by Siberians and have no racial connection to the Jewish nation whatsoever and uh, you know it's like all the evidence is basically against it. Um, what is the archaeological evidence that things that Luke talks about in the book of Acts are, are real whatever well, overwhelming <laughs> you know it's like um, but they don't go into that because they don't need to bother going into that because they know that it's all rubbish because they have a philosophical viewpoint. Mm. Having said that, we shouldn't really, you know, we should really trust evidence and evidence is what counts and make your argument and <laughs> like, <laughs> if only you would, if only you would. But they don't. <laughs> Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Anything that you would like to touch upon whilst I'm here that we haven't? No, I think we have been through uh, quite a lot of things. Mm. Uh, and uh, it will be, I think, uh, now to go further into each argument mm. and uh, yeah. to try to to look at its uh, uh, foundation or mm, 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 mm. its reasons and, and maybe also some of the uh, counter arguments mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so uh, uh, yeah and I also think uh, in in, um, in these arguments uh, are you, or in your book, are you touching much uh, upon the self-understanding of Jesus? Yeah, in the in the chapters on the uh, lunatic lie lord argument, yeah. um, a sort of his self-understanding, and the miracle chapter contributes mm. to that as well. Um, um, in as much as I mean, even there are even sceptical New Testament scholars who mm. agree that. Jesus and his and his culture thought that he worked certain miracles and exorcisms and so on, and that he did those as signs of the inbreaking of the kingdom, mm. um, and that he did it with a certain personal authority mm. that, uh, say, other Jewish exorcists of the time didn't. Mm. So, you know, where where a, a Jewish exorcist might try an exorcism 
in the name of God and the power of Solomon and the wisdom of Solomon and, and quote various sort of magical uh, sort of amulet things and uh, Jesus will just will just say out <laughs> or you know uh, this in, in his sort of own authority uh, or or heal in his own authority and so on so that the even if you you say oh it's it, they were psychosomatic it was people with mental illnesses who it's sort of faith healing it's sort of placebo or you try and sort of explain and say it wasn't supernatural but nonetheless you end up granting he he seems to have been perceived to have done things which contributed to his personal claims about his understanding as what sort of messiah he was what sort of role or authority he had in jewish religious life according to him and that he was doing things that he thought were and some people perceived to be as as confirmatory signs of that authority because why would you know god heal someone that jesus had sort of you know in my authority i say get up and walk if god weren't on his side mm. <laughs> kind, of, kind of thing and you get scenes of the, the crowd saying, sort of saying you know when the messiah comes will he do more, more more miracles than these and jesus saying you know believe what i say but if you don't believe me because of what i say at least believe because of the evidence of the miracles mm. jesus himself a, a, appeals to them john asks you know when he's in prison are, are you the messiah to come have i got myself in prison over nothing here having doubts you know jesus sends back through his disciples well tell him what i'm doing yeah. the lame walk the, the blind see so i'm referring back to passage in isaiah and yeah. that i'm working these signs as a sign that this is the inbreaking in the kingdom of god and so on so even if you don't think that the the the, the signs the miracles give additional evidence because you don't think they were really supernatural events mm. they do contribute to our understanding of Jesus's self-understanding mm. which again in the context of um, the rest of the evidence that we seem to have about the the wisdom of his teaching and his moral character and so on at least I think presents you with a with a bit of an, a, a conundrum a, a puzzle to be mm. solved um, you know, is this is this a guy full of humility, serving others, or is he really full of himself? <laughs> um, is he a great moral teacher who is at one and the same time putting some sort of con job and blaspheming in his culture, or does he really believe it and he's deluded about his very uh, nature? Um, and yet if he's so deluded about who he is uh, can he give teaching that makes so much sort of wise sense of how to live life in a way that millions of people have found work and uh, he has seems to have really sort of keen intellectual insight and discussions with leading religious figures of his day and um, he doesn't sort of exhibit the classical signs of uh, psychological conditions of, of people who have sort of messiah divinity complexes mm. so it's really hard to just sort of dismiss him as a well there are loads of people in, in, in with florid 
hallucinations in insane asylums who think they're Napoleon or mm. Jesus or whatever. He's just, he's just like that, you know. Yeah, but he doesn't fit the the profile mm. from the other data we have. So how do you kind of square this? And again, I, d I don't think it's an argument that sort of, oh, there we go, lunatic liar or lord, mm. therefore he must be the incarnate son of God. Mm. Case Case proven. I don't need to write the rest of the book. <laughs> but I do think it's something that should make you a bit kind of, yeah, he's worth investigating this guy a bit more. Um, I, I can, I can, yeah, I see where we're going with this and I want to find out more. And I guess that makes me a little bit less sceptical than I was. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to do the whole thing in, 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 in one. Yeah, kind of. it's, it's a very deep uh, and uh, it's a very big thing to, to change your mm. worldview. Mm. Uh, you yeah. should let people get some space and yeah. time, I think. Yeah. takes time, takes, yeah. um, sometimes it takes, takes years to move from, because you're moving from one way of life to another way of life. Yeah. You're not just changing your opinion on a few general knowledge questions you know, that you'd answer differently at the pub quiz. <laughs> like, uh, mm. yeah, absolutely. And, and so, yeah, and because of that, the, this sort of apologetics really does need to embrace these issues about not just, you know, philosophical and historical truth, but issues about goodness and beauty. And is this, a, is this an attractive way of life to become a follower of Jesus? Mm. Is, is that really a, a, a good thing to be mm. a, a Christian? Or is that a bad thing. A lot of the apologetic issues today are about, well, being a Christian is bad. Mm. It's, it's being religious is evil. Mm. Um, it's not, not directly about, oh, I don't think you've got good evidence for it. Mm. You know, uh, the new atheists, you know, famously, they, they, they push this agenda of not, not only is it an intellectual mistake, it's not just wrong in that sense, mm. it's morally wrong. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, how can you be a modern twenty-first century person and, and and adopt Christian moral views on, mm. you know, the nature of marriage or mm. how society should function or, mm. you know, etc. Um, etc. Et so, all of those issues people have to kind of get to grips with mm. in in thinking: Am I going to become a Christian or not? You know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but still, I think that uh, in addition to that, they need to come to grips with uh, this. I think also there is uh, a lot of dishonesty. They are not seeking the truth, but wow. yeah. comfort in life and uh, things like this, and I'm not interested in the truth question. Mm. I think for many people that may well. Yeah. Probably is the case for many people. I don't want to say it's the case for everyone. No, I don't think it is. Um, but it's very difficult to psychoanalyze yeah. other people, particularly people you, you, you don't know. You can do a little bit more with people you do know, you're in more of a relationship with. Mm -hmm. And I've certainly been involved in, in apologetical discussions with people that I, that I feel I've got to know enough 
to be able to broach those kind of kind of issues of are you really seeking truth here or are you just looking for any available escape hatch <laughs> you know um, um, pointing out you know are you being consistent here and, and, and so on um, and yeah that's certainly in a dimension to be aware of um, say we all have our, our biases yeah. this way and that way uh, yeah so well um, grand thank you for um, good questions and for uh, letting me witter mm. and uh, getting me back on target occasionally and uh, yeah. yeah I hope it's very interesting yeah and I think also it's an important task to be working with. Yeah. It's, uh, it seems to be quite central to the question message. Absolutely. So I'm looking forward to engage more with this. And I have your heart.